0: Good evening, everybody. How are you? I'm Mark Steiner. Pleasure to have you at the Pratt tonight um, to have this conversation with Joanne Reed. Before we start and then do the introductions, um, a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, there's Someone who has walked away by accident with a different black coat than is, than is theirs. If you check your coats and see if you have... This is a woman's coat. Um, so if you have a black coat you think may not be yours, uh, check that out. Maybe no oh there we go Uh, yes
1: (laughs) what does he win mark what does he win (laughs) that's not your coat
0: no this is the one you're looking for. is this a missing coat there we are i hope thank you very much well now we're still missing a coat and we will not start the conversation until we get the coat (laughs) oh they they found the coat back there that maybe that's your coat Anybody else missing a coat? Okay, so uh, first I want to welcome you to the Pratt. I was a board member here for nine years. I just couldn't afford it anymore. (laughs) I'm just kidding, this was a great sojourn for those nine years being a member of the Pratt board and I want to welcome you all here. The Pratt is a really very important institution. Very quickly just to say that it's one of the few institutions left that is grand and really serves the people of this community you go to the libraries around the city, you see working class and poor people in those libraries every day, reading, working on resumes, finding a place to sit and be, and so and a place of great learning that I grew up in here. So uh, welcome to the Pratt, good to have you with us. And um, our, our great Carla Hayden could not be here tonight, uh, so I'm introducing it since Carla could not join us tonight. Uh, she really did, did want to be here, but Joanne Reeb could not be here this evening. And to remind you that on February the 23rd, Cory Booker will be here for another Writer's Live, talk about his book, United. So um, we may even talk about him a little bit tonight, you never know. So Joanne Reed's with us, and um, we all know her from her time at MSNBC, where she still is there. She, when I was on Melissa Harris Perry show just recently, she was the host. Um, And so it's an honor to have her say it was okay for me to be up here with her. She's one of our, I think, one of our leading political analysts and thinkers in this country. She has a lot to share and say.
1: Thank you, Mark.
0: And the book is Fracture Barack Obama, the Clintons, and the Racial Divide. And so let's just begin. And is there an audience mic, by the way? We have that? Oh, there we are. Cool. Good. So we'll get to the audience shortly. Um, Let's just begin at the beginning in a sense. I said before we started this that one of the things that really struck me about this book was how you opened it, the history you gave us in this book about the black vote in America. Um, And it's fascinating. Taking it from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s, and watching the black—it was partially watching the black community wrestling with where its vote was going to go, and America trying to figure out what all that meant.
1: Yeah, and uh, and first of all, I'd like to say thank you very much to the Enoch Pratt Pratt Library, to the board, and to you, Mark, for the invitation. Uh, It's great to be here, and uh, I'm also equally excited that I will be back in New York before you get your blizzard. Not that I don't want (laughs) to share in your suffering. I'm taking the same train with you. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, it, it's great to be here. So when I started thinking about the book, um, I actually um, pitched it to HarperCollins in 2013, um, which was the 50th anniversary, this sort of jubilee year of the March on Washington, uh, and I was aware that we were facing, you know, three consecutive years of these big 50s: the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Selma. All of that was wrapped up in that coming three years. Uh, And I wanted to write about what happened in 2008, the whole experience between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton as they fought for the nomination. Um, But I felt like because the crux of the argument that really broke the Clintons' hold on African-Americans was an argument about 1964. It was an argument about the balance between the Civil Rights Movement and the politics of Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Party, and which of those Um, held more sway in terms of getting the gains that we've seen uh, in terms of the vote and in terms of civil rights. That's kind of what they were arguing about. They were arguing about the 60s. So I felt like it was important to start the book at the beginning. Um, And if you look at the African-American vote, the black vote, you you assume that it's just this eternally democratic vote, but it's actually been a really volatile vote um, over the course of the 20th century, lurching um, between the two parties, in part because of necessity most black people lived in the south but the south is where the democrats were the party of the Klan, um and so getting into the only party that you could participate in the system in meant really breaking into the party and i was struck as i did the research how much getting into the democratic party was like moving into an all-white neighborhood the black people moved in a lot of the white people moved out and that's really what happened over the course of 40 50 years
0: i think this is a really important part of it i mean that because we speak about it, but don't gloss over it a lot, which is that, I mean, when you talk about Harry Truman's race and how his small margin of victory could be placed at the black vote in several states, we forget about that part.
1: Yeah. It came down to 20,000 votes in Ohio or Michigan or 15 or 14,000 votes. And so what you had happen was the Great Migration pushed a lot of African Americans out of the South, but not most. Most African Americans still lived in the South, but where black... Uh, people moved, where black families moved, whether it was Chicago or whether it was parts of Ohio or even parts of Indiana and Indianapolis, they were concentrated votes. And so when it came time for Democrats to win elections, they had this weird North-South coalition where they had the Rust Belt and the Northeast and they had the South. And Republicans had California, which people forget that you know, from 1952 until you know the 80s, California was pretty much a reliably used to be a Republican state, right? right? The Republicans had the Sun Belt, they had the West, um, and so the transition between the two parties. A lot of that change was about where the African American vote went.
0: We forget we say California because Chief Justice Warren, 1954 fame, was a Republican.
1: Ronald Reagan <laughs> right? and Richard Nixon, both California,
0: right? And I, I think that that transition, because even during the 50s when Eisenhower got a huge chunk of the black vote, it's always been interesting to watch that dynamic. I mean, because in that period, you look at people like Adelaide Stevenson, who was running for president in the 1950s, just could not relate to the black world. and The black world could not relate to him.
1: Yeah, And, and you know, it, there's a the part of, of the early part of the book that I talk about, um, the dynamic of Ad, Adam Clayton Powell. Who you know At the time, I'm trying to think of who would be the equivalent of Adam Clayton Powell now. He was one of the most famous African Americans in the country. Probably one of the top five most famous black people in America at the time. Big time politician from Harlem. Very fla- you know, flashy, showy Abyssinian guy. Abyssinian Baptist Church. Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. He ends up endorsing Eisenhower. Um, because at the time, the Democrat who was running had on his ticket one of the signers of right. the Southern Manifesto. So, you know, Eisenhower, who was not exactly enthusiastic about civil rights, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, he almost had no reaction to the lynching of Emmett Till. He had a very muted reaction to that. When Brown versus Board, um, when the Supreme Court made that ruling, it's not like he lurched into action. He was kind of forced uh, by the moral approbation of the civil rights movement to send troops to, uh, to Arkansas, to Little Rock. Um, but he did some things that African-Americans thought, you know, we can work with him particularly on the military, and on forcing the final branch of the military, which refused to abide by the Truman executive order, which is the Marines, to desegregate. And he did a lot in terms of that. And there were some things that he'd done in Washington that Powell thought he could work with him more than he could work with a Democrat who would put a segregationist on his ticket.
0: And so we, we look at this election here in 2016, and we have to, before we can think about what that means, there's some events that took place. One was talking a bit about what happened in 1964 with those Southern Democrats and how the contradictions came to the fore. They're still playing themselves out. Those contradictions that happened with Lyndon Baines Johnson and 64. Talk a bit about that.
1: So it's interesting. So if you look at what was the Civil Rights Act of 63 that, uh, that John F. Kennedy introduces in June of 63 after the stand in the schoolhouse door um, really pushes him and the, the murder of Medgar Evers, all of this is taking place in the summer of 63. Kennedy gives this landmark televised speech the first time a president has asked all three television networks to give him time uh, to three talk. networks. And there were only three. <laughs> I want to age myself, but I remember when there were not much, many more than that. But because um, you know, and so Kennedy gives this speech. He introduces the civil rights bill, but he also has all these other priorities. He's trying to get a massive tax cut through. This would have been the, this was the largest tax cut in the history of the cover of the country, and he's trying to get that through, and he's got all these other priorities. He needs the Southern Democrats to get his tax bill through, so he's having a hard time, and Kennedy wasn't exactly a vigorous uh, pursuer of civil rights legislation. Uh, and then, of course, the March on Washington happens, and people forget that the March on Washington was not a mark to support John F. Kennedy and how great he was doing on civil rights. It was to push Kennedy. It was to insist that the bill that he'd introduced in June, that there be action on it and that Congress take action on his bill. Um, and it was deliberately done on the, um, the eighth anniversary of Emmett Till's murder. Um, it was—it it had a lot of real deliberate significance. And then two weeks after that march, you had the bombing of that Birmingham church and those four little girls killed. So this was a very dangerous time to be doing civil rights. And then of course Kennedy is is murdered. Um, he's assassinated in December. And Johnson, who a didn't like John F. Kennedy, <laughs> right? They didn't—they couldn't stand each other quite frankly. Um, B, who felt eclipsed by Kennedy all the time, he still takes up Kennedy's bill, and it becomes the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, it's pushed through just through a monumental effort that included advising African Americans to court Republicans to promise to support Everett Dirksen's re-election in Illinois, even though he was a Republican, and literally the Democratic president is saying, go to the other side and get them to be on your side, and it ends up working. But literally um, within a month of it passing, um, The months that bookend the passage of the Civil Rights Act include the disappearance of those three civil rights workers just before it passes, finding their bodies a couple weeks after it passes, and then about a few weeks after that, a Democratic convention in which Lyndon Johnson himself sidelines the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. So there are just so many contradictions in even the Johnsonian Democratic Party when it comes to black people.
0: I'm going to bring, raise this a number of times in the course of the conversation because one of the things that struck me about your analysis of how politics grew in America, with Democrats and Republicans, and the African American world, are the contradictions. I mean, the whole thing was a mass of contradictions um, about why people supported who they supported and and the complexity of that. I mean, that what you're describing uh, is, a, is a very kind of really important point. The same thing happened when you talk later. Um, in the book about the era we're in now, Yeah. you know?
1: It's interesting. I, I, I like to say this statistic, particularly to Republican friends, that where the Democratic Party is, I mean, where the Republican Party is right now with Latinos, that percentage share of the Latino vote that tends to drift toward Republicans. Maybe not now. It's gotten worse since the Romney election, but pre-Romney election is exactly where black people were in the 1960s. They were about 65-35 Democratic, and they were only so much they were only preponderantly Democratic because south of the Mason-Dixon line there was no Republican party. So if you wanted any power at all, if you wanted to participate at all, there was only one party. So African Americans were Democrats not by, um, because they preferred the party in any way, but because it was the only game in town. They had to join the Democratic Party in order to exercise power. And so that presented a whole lot of sort of interesting opportunities for the party and a lot of challenges.
0: So the, what I was just thinking about was the, the 1964 Southern man, Lyndon Baines Johnson, makes these pushes to, to change civil rights in this country that you write about. Um, Van Lu Hamer leads the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to Atlantic City Democratic Convention, shoved aside, but makes a powerful statement the entire country sees. One
1: month after the Civil Rights Act had been signed. Yep.
0: Exactly. That you point out in the book as well. The book is chock full of so much stuff, I can't go through all of it because we'll be here all night just doing that, Play out little pieces. But, but, the, but So t- what I'm trying to say here is, is that those contradictions made me think about when you wrote about the Clintons later in the book. You have somebody like Bill Clinton, as you write about, who took the party right to the right, appealed to white working class voters, but at the same time had this thing happening in black churches and wherever he went in the black community and kind of could relate in a way that that changed things. I mean, those kind of contradictions are throughout our political history.
1: Yeah. They're very strange. It it is very strange. So you have this party, if you think about it. So I gave this lecture at um, Wake Forest not too long ago where I talked about... Kind of the evolution of more media, right? And this question of when did this idea that the media is liberal kick in? And it really happened when journalists from up north, from Chicago, from New York, from north of the Mason Nixon line, went south during the Civil Rights Movement and essentially took sides on the side of the oppressed in the south, on the side of, of African Americans in the south. When they went back home to New York and to Boston, they continued to stay on that same side on the issue of busing. And so for northern suburban white America who had been able to sort of look askance at Dixie and say, look at those people down there. They're horrible people. It's awful what they're doing to their, their Negroes, right? Which was the term of the time. And then all of a sudden <laughs> they looked negros, up right. to find that the Washington Post and the Boston Globe were looking that way at them because they didn't want to have their kids' bus to other schools out of their neighborhood, and they didn't want to have the government telling them who could live near next door, and they didn't see themselves in the same vein as the South, but they were being covered that way. That's sort of the moment when you started to have that meme about the media being liberal, because now it wasn't just about the South, it was about the North. And I write a lot about the 80s in New York, when Reverend Al Sharpton became like the number one villain in America, and what he was doing was pointing to northern racial conflict, which made it very uncomfortable for the media, which is based in New York. you know. So you, you have all these strange things happening. And I think for the Democratic Party, post Lyndon Johnson, they spent the next 40 years trying to figure out a way to get out from under Lyndon Johnson's legacy, to move the party out of being seen as so beholden to African Americans that it was opposed to the interests of the white working class. The Schlitz malt liquor vote was slipping away because North or South, Democrats were associated with liberalism, which was against them. And so you have all these politicians trying to figure out how to do it. Carter tried. Carter ran as a conservative. We think of him as a liberal now, but he actually ran saying the party's too liberal. I'm an evangelical Bible-believing Southern Christian. I'm the remedy for the party. There was something called the ABC movement, Anybody But Carter, which was led by Teddy Kennedy. The liberals despised Jimmy Carter. And then Clinton comes along and he figures it out. He's Southern, so he knows how to talk to African-Americans. He has... He actually has black friends. Vernon Jordan is his actual friend. Um, So he knows how to be um, a friend to African-Americans and to be seen to be a friend. But he also knows how to rebuke. And he rebukes African-Americans in the showiest way possible by rebuking Jesse Jackson.
0: Another contradiction. A lot. (laughs) Because he and Jesse Jackson are tight. They're friends. They... You tell that story in there about how Jesse Jackson was in the governor's mansion in Arkansas until 3 in the morning and Hillary had to kick him out because he was there all night long. I mean, <laughs> so that, that's, again, that's what I'm saying, this is fraught with contradictions.
1: Yeah, and Jesse Jackson is, is a figure that now is sort of marginalized in the, in the, 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 the consciousness of most people. But you have to remember that, that, you know, just as Adam Clayton Powell was much more famous than you remember, so was Jesse Jackson. You know, from the time that King was assassinated, the media, of course, and the country was looking for a replacement for King. And here's this young guy, 6'4", 6'5", great looking, he's got the big afro, he's like cool, you know, former football player. And he fits the, the media bill and he becomes this huge superstar. And when he ran for, for president in 84, he was like Bernie Sanders. He basically was Bernie Sanders in a way, right? right. The nation even endorsed him in, in, I think, in 88. But he runs this insurgent campaign that is unabashedly liberal, unabashedly black. Um, But also saying we're going to take all the marginalized people in the country and band them together. He's the first person to really overtly run on gay rights and say that was part of the platform, part of the rainbow. And he runs this insurgent campaign that does way better than anyone thinks it's going to do. The black establishment wanted nothing to do with it. But he he runs, does very well. They give him nothing. Then he runs again in 88. He wins 13 states. He wins Michigan. Like he comes really close to beating Michael Dukakis. And now the party is like, we have to give him something. We don't want to be vice president. We got to give him something. They end up giving him this delegate math that ends up helping Barack Obama. So this is a very important man. But by 92, the party was sufficiently worried that Jesse Jackson was going to keep demanding more for his loyalty, that he had to be put down. And when Bill Clinton takes control of the party and takes control of the Democratic Leadership Council, he finds the perfect way to both put down this threat to the establishment and to signal to white working-class voters that he's not bought and paid for by black America. So he essentially rebukes Jesse Jackson in front of his own organization, humiliates him, really, over Sister Soldier, and executes Ricky Ray Rector, a black-enfeebled man in Arkansas, and he sends these really subtle but really important signals to white voters. He cracks the code.
0: A couple of things here, just just to explore. One about... Clinton and which is about Jackson and Lana Guinea, which I want to come to um, but the, the other again is this the idea that most people don't think about us I'll tell you where we started you and my dear friend the poet Ethel Burt Miller said the same thing as you said in your book which is that if there hadn't been for Jesse Jackson there would be no Barack Obama right.
1: I mean for a lot of reasons so first of all we all know Super Tuesday is March 1st uh, and Super Tuesday is primarily in the south The reason Super Tuesday is so significant is because of Jesse Jackson. What Jackson does is he goes from church to church across Alabama, which by the way vied to be, Mississippi, Alabama, and South Carolina all competed to be the fourth in the nation state. It wasn't automatically going to go to South Carolina. These other two states vied for it too. Because one of the things that Jesse Jackson did that was incredible was he was just going across the South registering voters, millions of voters, millions of Democrats, almost all Democrats, African Americans. And so he has this incredible voter registration campaign in 84 um, and he romps across the South. And then in 88, he wins a bunch of Southern primaries. And then when he wins that concession on the way you do the delegate math, because they got to give him something. So they say, okay, we'll do proportional delegates so that you don't have to get 100% of the California delegates. If you only won 52% of the vote, you get 52%. Fine. We'll give you that. And that'll be the rules. Well, by those rules. By the time Barack Obama runs for president, not only does he have a party that because of Jesse Jackson's campaign has two, had two to four million more black voters in it who then had kids, right, who were then also Democrats, it also had a math equation for how you get delegates that made it possible for Barack Obama to lose California, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, big states and still beat her because he got a proportion of the delegates. He got a share in Texas. And he bled her with these little primaries, and that is 100% because of Jesse Jackson.
0: So the, the, when I mentioned Lana Guineer, and we can talk a bit about who she was and what happened to her under Clinton, what strikes me sometimes, I thought about this reading your book. I was going through my notes on your book at my study in the office, and was thinking about how... Here we have Governor Clinton, as you wrote about, it, who put the party to the right. But he reminded me... the way What passed my head was this very cool white guy who is enamored of black people and black culture, likes the style, likes what you think is hip, and is, a lot, is part of the white world of thinking that, right? So he has all that, but then when he, but his actions are like cut welfare to the bone, um, put down Jesse Jackson, fire Lana Guineer, but the love affair is still there until he disses Obama in that primary. I mean, so that's what I'm saying about this kind of complexity is fascinating.
1: Yeah, and one of the reasons for that is the Clintons, the way Bill Clinton operates is you can call it transactional. A lot of people use that word to talk about to Hillary Clinton. It's probably more true about Bill Clinton. But the transaction is this. He sends his HUD secretary out to go and talk to these civil rights leaders. Because first of all, he has relationships. He's friends with these people. He doesn't have to get to know black leaders. He already knows them. Um, And he came into office in 92 with this diaspora of the largest class of African-American members of Congress in U.S. history. So he has this whole class of 92, a lot of whom are either not, if they're not from Arkansas, they have roots in Arkansas. So they have ties to him, or they have ties to Vernon Jordan, or they have ties to the old Martin Luther King coalition. And these are his people. These are his friends. So he goes out and he says to them, I have to do welfare reform. I have to do it. Newt Gingrich is going to propose to essentially eliminate welfare. I have to meet him halfway. This is the bargain I'm going to set. I am going to do it, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I got this couple million dollars for your city. I got these enterprise zones. I got this money for this program you want to do. You need a community center in your neighborhood? I got that for you. He earmarked so much money that in the cities, even as they were doing welfare reform, the cities, the urban centers where black people live, were actually doing really well. There was actually money flowing into the inner city and it was directly targeted money. This was money targeted to black people. Enterprise zones were about black people and he made it really clear and overt that that is what he was doing in exchange. That kind of transactional relationship is something Barack Obama not only didn't do but refused to do. (laughs) That was what he was repudiating as the kind of politics he just disagrees with.
0: So in some ways... Clinton was as close as we get in the modern era to LBJ
1: basically and he or or to a big city mayor i always think Bill Clinton is more like a mayor then he is like a. Then he was like a president, you know? He he's got something for everybody and he loves the glad handing, right? He's oh, he you know, does. come on up to the White House for barbecue, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he loves that. Like he'll do even with the people he hates, you know, he'll still have you over and, and he just charmed the hell out of everyone, even the Republicans. I mean Newt Gingrich likes Bill Clinton. Even as they were impeaching him, they liked him, you know, and he did that thing with black people as well. I quoted somebody in the book who said that Bill Clinton is the guy who will, you know, go to the church and everybody starts singing, would lift every voice and sing, and you get to the third stanza, He's and even the singing. black people are going, sin, small, small. and he knows all the words. You're like, he knows all the words. And, and another person who said that if Bill Clinton was black and Jesse Jackson was white, Bill Clinton would be a Baptist preacher and Jesse Jackson would be would president. would be president of the
0: United States. Yeah. <laughs> but let's move ourselves to... Um Katrina, Bush, Kanye, and Obama.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I'm I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, no, I should have thrown a question. i just throwing it the it out there. there. I'm sorry. Well, yeah. it's, it's interesting because so the Clinton years, of course, produced the huge disappointments. One of my favorite kind of stories in, in the book, which is a sad story actually, was the way the 2000 election finally ended because it really showed you a lot of what the Democratic Party's relationship and respect for African-American voters really kind of was because in 2000, of course, George W. Bush loses the popular vote by 544,000 votes or so. The Supreme Court still decides he's the winner and you have these 13 members of, of the House of Representatives, 10 African-American, one white, one Asian-American, get up in the well of the Senate and beg, essentially, for any senator, including some of the most liberal senators on the, in the Democratic Party. They just needed one signature to join with them to challenge the Florida slate, and no one would do it. That
0: was, amazing. That was an amazing time.
1: If you ever want to just watch some C-span at its finest political theater that's chilling watch that, it's on YouTube and you just see them get up one after the other and and just essentially plead for help and the Democratic Party refuses to help and they let Bush get in. And then George W. Bush essentially reverses everything uh, in the same way that Reagan essentially cancelled the Great Society. He gutted it in his 82 and 83 budgets. Um, So does George W. Bush. Um, and the the sort of quintessential moment um, of African Americans' complete alienation from Washington is Katrina. When you have this storm sweep through, it's not a man-made disaster, it's not Bush's fault there was a Katrina, but the response was so absent that you have Kanye West, you know, this bombastic rapper guy, <laughs> stand up and speak for... A lot of African Americans, when he essentially said the government didn't care, George Bush doesn't care, which Bush said is the worst moment of his presidency, which includes 9/11, the Iraq War. He said that was the worst moment of Bush his presidency. It's not like
0: white people, black people. That was people, it. That was the bottom. Said, like right.
1: that was the low moment. And so you, you know, the, the Bush era, I think, produced so much disappointment that whoever got the nomination in 2008 was going to be president, no matter what. And so the fight for that nomination was that ferocious because both of those two campaigns knew that the winner would be president. So
0: as I finished the book, I was thinking about um, where you think this takes us. And if you look at the history that you laid out for us in the book about the black vote in America, the black political struggle in America inside the Democratic Party, what happened from especially the 60s onward to where we are now, and Barack Obama being elected, Katrina, Barack Obama, those two things in some ways began to publicly, it's already been divided, but really publicly divide this country and, and make it and show the real clear division of two Americas, at least two Americas. So the, the Democratic Party is majority minority really in this country and more women than men and you can see that when you go to the conventions um, and the Republican Party is majority men and majority white so I'm curious you, given all the analyses you have in this book where does that take us do you think?
1: It's interesting so, so the, the, the Democratic Party isn't quite majority minority yet it's, relies, um, on, it relies on it's one third minority it's one third non-white um, a little more than, a, than 33% 3% non-white right now. So meaning it's completely dependent. The South Carolina primary, for instance, is 50% black. 50% of those votes come from African Americans. So it's very dependent, especially given the schedule. You have two all-white primaries, which is New Hampshire and Iowa, followed by a heavily Hispanic primary in Nevada, followed by a heavily black primary in um, South South Carolina, Carolina, which is why Bernie Sanders is having so much trouble because he, he can win those first two, maybe, probably not even Iowa, but he could, even if he won those first two, he's going to have a really hard time when he gets to the states that are more diverse, because the Democratic Party is just diverse. There's an interesting statistic that—I um, love statistics. So, I can tell. You can tell. The There's book, a lot of statistics tell. in the book. <laughs> um, in 1940, 82% of adults over the age of 25 were white Americans with no more than a high school diploma. of everyone over 25 in America was a white man or woman with no more than a high school diploma. By 2007, or by the time Barack Obama ran for president, only 29% of the country was that. Only 29%. The the white, blue-collar vote has shrunk so small that it is no longer determinative of who is president of the United States. Barack Obama in 2012, when he had now been, he's now Barack Obama, not the hope Barack Obama on the poster. He's not the eight, you know, 04 convention Obama that got a you know, pretty sizable share of the white vote. He got 43% of the white vote when he ran in 08. By 12, he was completely vilified. He was the Obama he is now, like the totally hated guy. He lost every demographic of white voters, including young white voters. He lost white voters 18 to 30, he lost white women. He lost every cohort of white voters except single white women. Every other one. Every age group. Every regional group. And he won by 7 million votes, right? So the demographics of the country are sliding so fast toward what the Democratic Party is and the Republican Party is 90 plus percent white that Leaders of the Republican Party will tell you this can't be sustained, that their party can win congressional races this way, they can win governor's races because of gerrymandering, they can win state senate and state rep, um, and because of gerrymandering they can keep the House until at least 2020. But they can't win the White House this way. So you have this real conversation happening inside the Republican Party of how can they expand beyond the white voter base, which also has a lower birth rate. It's just for a lot of reasons. It's one of the reasons immigration is the... Most important issue in the Republican Party right now—it's the deal killer among white working-class voters. Period. Um, so I think for the Democrats, it's good news and bad news, right? It's it's good news in the sense that they have the diversity they need, but the terrible news for Democrats is number one, they don't pay too much—they don't pay enough attention to their elect their voters. Um, they have the same elites versus regular folks problem that Republicans have where the regular folks don't always feel the elites pay attention to them. And they are terrible at getting their vote out in midterms. Terrible. And they're not working on it. And the Democratic National Committee doesn't seem to have any answer to it. And so just real quick and then I'll throw it back to you, but one statistic, we were talking a lot about Flint. So Michigan um, in 2010, has, I mean 2008, their presidential election, 66% turnout which is bad in the rest of the Western world, but really good in America, 66%. The 2010 midterm, the turnout is 41%. The 2012 election comes along, the turnout is 61%. Obama carries Michigan, both of those two presidential elections. Rick Snyder, the current governor who put in the managers and all that, wins the governorship. His re-elect in 2014, the turnout was 42%. So this seesaw is killing the Democratic Party because whatever gains they make in the presidential years, they give it all back in midterms.
0: So even though this is not the heart of your book, I'm, I'm curious why you think that is. I mean, when Howard Dean was named head of the DNC, he actually worked to turn that around, decided to try to make it a 50-state party and put money into that stuff. So what has happened? Why are the Democrats so complacent where well, you watch Republicans and conservatives in America from the 70s in reaction to the 60s, reaction to... The, the change in, in the country through these massive organizing efforts over decades. What's wrong with the Democrats?
1: I, I call it the, 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 the curse of the magical presidency, right? So particularly African Americans, but also increasingly Latinos, see the executive, the president, as the last line of defense in defense of them, of their, of them and their rights. So when those civil rights workers disappeared, the Mississippi authorities said, Okay. It took the feds, the FBI, to go down there and find those, those people. Right. Um, when black people were lynched, other than Woodrow Wilson, who refused to do anything, probably the worst Democrat in the history of the 20th century, who refused to do anything. But that's who, you know, the, the, that's who the NAACP was appealing to, because they knew the states weren't going to do anything. The governor of Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, they weren't going to lift a finger to stop lynching. They didn't care. Um, the sheriff didn't care and probably was part of the mob a lot of the time. Right. Um, African Americans' relationship with states' rights has been red shirts, lynchings, the Klan, the sheriff who drags someone out of jail and throws them to the mob. The experience has been that it takes the federal government to save black lives and that the only entity in government that thinks black lives matter, to quote a phrase, is the federal government, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So people of color tend to look to the president as the seat of power and as the seat of justice. Whereas, for a lot of white voters, it's been the state. It's been their governor, it's been their mayor. And so there's just a habit of voting for president that doesn't translate to voting for city council and voting for mayor. And the Democratic Party's just done a poor job of changing it, of changing that habit.
0: Well, I, I, you can see why I think that Joanne is one of our most brilliant political thinkers, I think, around. <laughs> Alice, She is. Um, I have a lot more questions, but I, I don't want to hog this. Well, I could, but I don't want to. Judy, how are we doing on time? Okay. Fine. Right, let me know when we're not, because I forgot. So let's let's have some questions from the audience, um, and we got you, Ralph Moore over there. No, wait, do do it in the mic because we need. Uh, we're recording this for radio. Yeah, you're on radio.
1: Wow. Um, one quick question. Um, Would you have some idea if Martin Luther King had a party affiliation? Was he a Democrat or was he a Republican? Right. And then my second question is... Bernie Sanders and his remarks about reparations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Okay. Sure, yeah. Um, so Martin Luther King Jr. was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I actually quote quote him in the book. It was a really long quote, but my editor cut it down. <laughs> the book was really long, by the way. When I turned it in, he cut it way down. I want, I to, read so, the,
0: I want to read what was cut out.
1: I know. I, well, I had, I, I'm i obsessed with the 60s, so I have another whole book. I may, I may just have to just publish it, just my Let's 60s quote. part. Um, so King specifically... Um, In 1960, early 1964, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, wrote platform letters to both the Republicans and the Democrats saying, what is your platform on civil rights? What is your platform on civic justice? They wrote to both. They were not a Democratic-leaning entity at all, and King cautioned, particularly young activists, never get aligned. With either of these two parties, because neither party has all the wisdom, neither party is all good, neither party is all bad. We need to go at them both and work with whoever's in there. If When Eisenhower was president, the civil rights leaders negotiated with Eisenhower, and when it was JFK and LBJ, they negotiated with them. There was never any affiliation. King's father um, went from being a Republican, like a lot of Southern black uh, people, to being a Democrat, and he was the first king to actually endorse someone, he endorsed Jimmy Carter. Um, and they that MLK coalition of Coretta and, and MLK Sr., that was the first sort of endorsing King's. There's some nieces of King who claim he was Republican, but the niece in particular, who I'm thinking of, was a baby. I don't even know if she was alive. Like, she never knew Martin Luther <laughs> King Jr., so she doesn't know. They're just saying that because the Republicans were the liberal party at one point, but he was not. As far as, um, if anybody doesn't know about the reparations piece, ta Coates asked Bernie Sanders' campaign, I mean, uh, remarked on the fact that Bernie Sanders said he's not for reparations. I think Bernie Sanders was giving a re, uh, an, an interview, right. and he was asking was for reparations, and he said he's not, and the reason he said he's not is he said it, it couldn't get through Congress. So ta Coates has really torn him apart on this, um, because what he said is, if you are the candidate of radical imagination, if you're saying... I know, you know uh, single-payer health care seems far-fetched, but have a radical imagination with me and let's imagine that it can happen and go after it even if it's not practical, then why does your radical imagination not extend to race? It's only there on your one issue, which is you know the breaking up the big banks, which is also impractical. So he's being beaten up on that. The reason it's significant is that Bernie Sanders represents the white liberal wing of the Democratic Party. He has no connection to the big, huge African-American end of the party, and he needs to have a connection, and having Ta-Nehisi Coates beat you up uh, is not a good look. And I think
0: that, <laughs> that just to, to that, prove that a little further, that, I mean, as ta wrote, he, he called Sanders' campaign over and over, and they, they, didn't, respond. they didn't call him back. That was part of the problem. Which the problem surprises well. me. And I've that, had conversations that with that
1: campaign. The Bernie Sanders campaign is confounding in the sense that they, they, they say they understand their problem. I've been on conference calls with them where I've you know, asked about this. They say they understand their problem, but I'm not sure they understand their problem.
0: You know, I, I, I started this um, conversation on Facebook with a bunch of folks. And it had to do with a video that the Atlantic Magazine put out about, Atlantic Monthly put out about, the Slavery Museum in Louisiana. And the white guy who started this museum uh, didn't think about it until he started the museum and started thinking about where he was. And then one of the things he said was really interesting. He said, the problem is that, that, that white people in America say, why can't they get over it? And the response is, you don't understand how to define the it. And I think that Sanders doesn't understand the it.
1: Right. Sanders is a one-issue no, guy. Right? You know, he's, he's very sincere on that one issue, which is you know, income inequality, breaking up the banks. He really wants to have socialized health care. Like, those are his things. He's not race and all that other stuff. He's having to deal with it because he's running for president. But those are not his thing. The Sanders supporters will, will say things like, Bernie Sanders marched with Dr. King at the March on Washington. Therefore, he's good on black issues. But 250,000 people marched with Dr. King. Right? So does that mean all of them are qualified to be president and each of them is like the greatest on civil rights? Of course not. Like, that's an absurd argument. And by the way, Dr. King was for reparations and Dr. King had a radical imagination on race. Dr. King, you know, as much as people postcardize him and turn him into a Hallmark card, had a speech in his pocket when he was killed that was entitled Why America May Go to Hell, which is exactly what Jeremiah Wright said. I mean, he was a radical. He was radically against the war. He was radically against inequality. He said America is the biggest perpetrator of violence on earth because of Vietnam. So He was not the postcard guy. You know, that was one line, ad-libbed line about, you know, the, you know, his ad-libbed lines are not King. So King was way more radical than Bernie Sanders on race. And I think for... It's interesting because white liberals were kicked essentially to the curb by the Clinton era. Clinton perfected getting rid of them. They're now back and they're really pushing the party in a lot of good ways to a progressive place. But on race... There is still a dividing line between black and white on what racial justice means. Bernie Sanders believes it means economic justice. Black Lives Matter, people who are talking about reparations, ta code say no. There's a race component.
0: I bet you when it comes out, let's go back to the audience here, I bet you when it comes out in the, in the, in the election, the primaries are done, that Bernie will have done better with young black voters
1: yes.
0: and... Hillary will do have done better with older black voters.
1: That's right, and so we there's a. St- I was trying to sort of put it uh, on. I was having a back forth on Twitter, and Michael Arsenault, really great young writer, he put it um, that you know Bernie Sanders already has the people who listen to con- you know who listen to Kendrick Lamar. He needs the people who listen to the OJ's. Exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> you <know>? it, right?
0: <laughs> That's it. That's a good. Way. I like that. That's right. That's right. Back to the audience.
1: Hi. How are you,
0: Councilwoman? How are you?
1: Good. Um, First of all, I want to thank you. You do a wonderful, fantastic job on MSNBC. And um, we just, well, we all follow you. Thank you. But, um, you know, I'm uh, on the council, and I'm a strong voice for unionism. And um, that, that has always been the voice of hard working class people and just kind of wanting your opinion on how you see that moving forward today. It's not good in a good question. place. Thank you for the question. It's not in a good place. The Supreme Court is about to mm. rule on a case that could strip unions of billions of dollars. and I, I you know, have a personal sort of feeling about John Roberts and kind of this project to inject more money into politics from corporations, but really of cripple union speech, right. you know, but um, it's not in a good place. Um, the union movement is, is on its kind of rear hind legs, I don't know the best way to put it, but it's not in a good place. And private sector unions have been really hobbled, and public sector unions, which are the only entity with enough resources to compete with big corporations, if you think about it, there is no other entity large enough or well-funded enough to compete with big corporations in terms of buying our politics. Unions are all that's left. And what's been really interesting, in addition to what Republicans have been able to do to pull over white working class voters who used to be Democrats, they've also turned a lot of those same voters against unions in a really remarkable way by offering more jobs. You know, The southern states have taken away a lot of the auto industry. Um, You make far less money working in the auto industry in the south, but at least you have have a a job. That's the way it's sort of sold. And then you also have, because again of the dereliction of Democrats in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, two of the cradles of the labor movement, those two states went right to work. And that is not because Republicans pulled a magic trick, it's because Democrats didn't vote in a census year, (laughs) which is insane. I still can't believe Democrats didn't turn out in 2010, but it just shows you some of the fissures in the party, including between liberals and the Obama coalition, which started fighting in 2009. They were already at each other's throats. And the blue dog Democrats versus the liberal Democrats versus the Obamas, it's just been a a constant dogfight that's not been helpful. And the union movement, I think, has been one of the big casualties. And
0: I think that also speaks to the fractures inside the Democratic Party and the Republican Party that America, in many ways, is splitting into many directions right now. For lots of complex reasons, race being one of the major factors.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the the Republican Party is, is... we're more fascinated with it right now because it's happening in a much more flashy way because there's a reality show. Well, now two reality show stars involved. down right. Sarah Palin's back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, It's more flashy, but it's the same thing. It's, it's basically white working class voters who were pulled into the Republican Party. And you have to remember, the Republicans pulled a really savvy sort of trick, right? They, they said to white Southerners, They're doing all the civil rights stuff for blacks, we're gonna do for you. Um, They're taking your hard earned money and giving it to undeserving people. And that ethic really has persisted. It's one of the reasons that that brand of conservatism that you see in the base of the Republican party, the blue collar base, it's not against social programs. They want Medicare, they want social security. They just feel, because this is the message, that their tax dollars are being siphoned off and that their rightful Medicare is being siphoned off and given to, you know, unlawful migration migrants and given to black people and people who won't get right. jobs. And so they've, that kind of psychological stimulus has been fed to that part of the party. And you've had Democrats for decades hoping to find a way to get them back. Howard Dean got in a lot of trouble for the way he put it in, in 04 when he said, he, we want the guys with the... Confederate flags on their pickups. That's what he was saying. He was saying we need to convince working class white voters that it's not in their interest to be against unions. It's not in their interest to vote on gay marriage instead of on jobs. But a funny thing happened because the Democrats weren't able to pull that off and the elites of the Republican Party didn't have any intention of serving their own working class base. They just kept telling them, gay marriage, gay marriage, gay marriage, and we're going to do immigration. You're wrong if you don't like it. You're just, you're just not compassionate enough if you don't like it. We're going to do it. The Chamber of Commerce says it. And a funny thing happened was the person who figured out that he should serve those people is Donald Trump, a former Democrat.
0: Right. And is doing it.
1: And he's using nativism, and he's using a lot of cues about anti-immigration, anti-Islam feeling, and he's it's successful. It's feeding a need that the elites of the Republican Party failed to feed.
0: Any more questions out here in the audience? We
1: have one right here.
0: Right here, and then we'll come, up, we'll come up here next.
1: Uh, Miss Reed, what is Obama's legacy, in your opinion? So, Barack Obama has been, um, I think, for his foes, one of the most frustrating presidents ever. And I think he's been frustrating in a lot of ways to his supporters in some ways too. But um, if you just look at the way historians devise those rankings, being a two-term president puts you in good shape. Um, passing health care reform and signing health care reform, which was a hundred-year project of the Democratic Party. FDR wanted universal health care to be in the Social Security Act. Couldn't get it in. Um, That's huge. The openings to Iran and Cuba are huge. Saving the auto industry is huge. I think the president has more raw accomplishments than any modern president that I can really think of um, in terms of just the number of accomplishments. He's an overachiever president. He's also an incredibly polarizing president. That will go in his legacy, too. The polarization based on race has been like nothing we've seen in decades. Um, You can say that's because he didn't do something magical that he should have done or because the opposition was dead set against him. Whatever you say, that is the fact. Um, But I think he will score quite high in the rankings of presidents, and that's on top of him being the first black president, which is in and of itself going to rank him at least in important. I think I go with Paul Krugman, who says he's probably the most consequential modern president. Um, He and Reagan, Paul Krugman, said that he and Reagan of the two modern presidents are are the most consequential.
0: I think that's probably true, and I I was wondering if you agree that you think that the books written about President Obama and this era will have as much to do with the reaction to him as a black man as president and all the contradictions that have been raised in America from Katrina to Obama to the videotaping now of people being killed by police, that this is, I mean, this has heightened the contradictions all over the place, which has as much to do with what circled around Obama as it had to do with Obama himself
1: yeah and and you know to be to be clear, it's not as if Barack Obama is the first president to be treated uncivilly right right, right. by his foes. I mean Lincoln they circulated pamphlets of him dragging his knuckles on the ground and called him an ape right. um They essentially accused him of being a negro um they right. you know there were vicious cartoons circulated about um about um Jefferson alluding to his Sexual uh, relationships with his enslaved staff, right? You had uh, John F. Kennedy in the months before he was killed. His detractors circulated wanted posters with John F. Kennedy's face on them, which is eerie. Um, So it's not as if presidents have not been vilified before. I mean, Bill Clinton was called a murderer. You know, people who were supposedly serious people were on television right. saying he might have killed Vince Foster.
0: That was so crazy.
1: Right. He was impeached. You know, right. so, I mean, it's not as if Barack Obama was unique in the sense of being a president who been vilified, but there hasn't been a president who's been specifically been called a child, a boy, depicted as, you know, it's some of the most vile racial terms, the monkey cartoons when he first came out the food stamp cartoon that an elected official circulated with his face on them. I mean, just the, the, um, the disrespect to his face. I mean, no one called Lincoln a monkey to his face, right? right? So I think this president has been uniquely uh, disparaged and belittled. No president has ever had to show his birth certificate. Um, you know, we've had many that weren't born in the country that ran. I don't think anyone asked George Romney to show his birth certificate, which would have showed he was born in Mexico. Um, John McCain was born with the Pet-im- Panama Canal zone, never had to show his papers. So this president has been...
0: Oh, yeah, I mean... It's going
1: to be in there. Going <laughs> it's going to be in there.
0: But this, the microphone's over here. My, my, my wife came back with a story from Indiana when she visited relatives where somebody actually said to her, um, did you know, and they were dead serious... Did you know that Michelle Obama is really a man, she has an Adam's apple? Which is what people actually I'm it was circulating, yeah. yeah. I mean yeah. that was
1: Yeah, and typically the first ladies are off limits, but even the children have not been off no, limits. I, know. I mean the girls were treated I mean well Chelsea Clinton actually was treated pretty poorly. Rush Limbaugh has still not apologized for calling her the White House dog when she was thirteen. Right, I remember that. Um so it's not as if, you know, he's the only one, but it's been pretty bad.
0: Sir, sorry. sorry.
1: Um, you, you told a vignette
0: about Johnson and Everett Dirksen, and, which happened 50 some years ago. I, I actually remember that. Um, but it couldn't have happened unless Johnson and Dirksen shared a vision about what was in the national interest. It just couldn't have happened. <coughs> It's inconceivable today, frankly, that something similar would have occurred between Obama and Mitch McConnell. It's just not, it's not within the realm of possibility. What's the likelihood that we could ever get back to that, where politicians on the national scene actually acted in in the national interest?
1: Yeah. it's So Chris Matthews, my friend, who I know has been here a lot, uh, wrote a great book, which I highly recommend, called Tip in the Gipper. Um, And he tells the story of how Democrats, after um, the attempt on Reagan's life in 81, decided to stand down on the 82 budget and let it pass. And their thinking was, number one, the country really wasn't in the mood for a protracted fight. They had been, you know, fearful that the president would die. And now that he's survived, they owed it to him to let him have his due. And plus he was elected, you know, he had a mandate, let him have it. Even though it eviscerated everything they believed in. It eviscerated the, I mean, the end of the um, war on poverty was the Reagan budgets of 82 and 83. And Democrats let it pass because they thought it was in the national interest to to coalesce around the president. Democrats, after nine eleven. um who detested George W. Bush. Let's let, make no mistake about it. My network was one of those that showed that tight shot of Bush's inauguration. Well, if you watch it on C-SPAN, you saw the wide shot. The wide shot was more protesters than I've ever, ever, ever seen. The protests at the Bush inauguration were mammoth, massive, huge protests against him being president. The Supreme Court has never recovered the respect that it had before it did that, before it made him president. But when 9-11 happened, Democrats said, okay, We're going to go along with it. We're going to go along with what he wants to do. And they worked with him on things like No Child Left Behind. uh, Teddy Kennedy worked on that bill. Something has changed in the incentive structure of the Republican Party in the Obama era to the point where members of Congress on the Republican side don't feel that they can afford to do anything with this president, anything that he would be willing to sign, because they, they fear the far right. Remember, the Tea Party, which we think of as gone, took out the majority leader of the House, would have taken out the Speaker if he hadn't resigned. I mean, the Pope saved John Boehner from humiliation by giving him somebody to walk behind as he was walking out the door, (laughs) right? I mean, they were going to get rid of John Boehner. He was paralyzed as Speaker. They paralyzed the House with 42 people. So, the incentive structure is now so profoundly shifted in the direction of non-compliance and non-cooperation that I can't foresee what could change it, because the Republican Party on immigration, for instance, 90% of them live in districts where there is fewer than 10% Hispanics, so it costs cost them nothing to say no, but if they were to say yes, because immigration is the driving issue for their base, they would lose. So And and already the base of the Republican Party, you have to remember the orientation of the Republican base is that they feel they're already losing. They think Barack Obama always wins. They think their side always gives in, always capitulates. They think Barack Obama has won a clean sweep for seven years and they can't take it anymore. So there's no incentive, there's no incentive. Democrats are different in terms of the way they operate in politics, which annoys their base because the Democratic base sees their party as kind of weak and willing to give in. But if you look at the polling on re- Democrats versus Republicans, Democratic voters prefer cooperation over confrontation. They actually reward cooperation more.
0: I was thinking about that part, but the issue you raised, and, and the, when I would think a lot about the part in the book where you talked about Everett Dirksen and relationship with Johnson and the Civil Rights Bill. And I often thought, and maybe you'll disagree with this, but I just want throw it out here, but, that the difference between the eras is in part, again, about political divisions of America, liberal and conservative, but it's also about race. In that, in that era, it was a good old boys club. Almost all men, all white men from the same class. They disagreed on economic things and some political issues. They played golf together, they hung out together. It's a different world, and we're not in that world. That's why we may not get back to it, or it can be very hard for us to find a way back to a new era of any kind of collegiality
1: yeah, and even the gerrymandering that has been done in the House of Representatives alone means that people are, are from such unlike districts, their districts are so undiluted that they don't confront or encounter anyone who is in any way dissimilar to them and so whereas the whole body was this clubby network where they were all similar now their little narrow district is and so there's no relationship between Maxine Waters right. and you know, Paul Ryan Like they don't have any reason to have a relationship at all and the incentive, even for a Paul Ryan, who sort of sees himself as an ideas man, the minute he cuts a deal, he cut a deal with the president on the budget so that they wouldn't have a, uh, another government shutdown. He's already being called a rhino, right? I mean, really conservative. Bob Dole is a conservative. He's considered a rhino. Everybody's a rhino now. Jeb Bush. I lived in Florida for 14 years. Trust me when I tell you Jeb Bush is conservative. He abolished affirmative action by decree. People hate Barack Obama's executive orders. Jeb Bush did an executive order to end affirmative action in Florida. He did that. He is a conservative. He's considered a rhino. Like Marco Rubio, who is Jeb Bush but Hispanic, like he's trying to run the same, he's the same guy. Jeb Bush like created him from a kit, right? He's the same guy. Marco Rubio just said last week, that he bought himself a gun for Christmas so that he could f- protect his family from ISIS. He lives in West Miami. <laughs> there is no ISIS in the gated communities of West... My- and I lived in Pembroke Pines. I know West. I know where he lives. He actually lives around the corner from Jeb Bush. There's no ISIS there. But he has a gun. He says... To protect his family, Marco Rubio is going to shoot ISIS by Biscayne Bay in the gated community in West Miami where he lives. That's how the incentive structure of the party has perverted the only, and it's interesting, the only principled conservative voice left is John Kasich. He's the only one who has refused to throw his dignity overboard right. in, in pursuit of the nomination, and he is hated by the base of that party. He has no chance. Zero. Like, zero.
0: <laughs> I, I, it's, it's, it's interesting to see And he's
1: too conservative for my politics. Like, he is very conservative. Very. Right. But he's considered a rhino. But he is very, very conservative. But he works with the other side. He does what you are talking about in Ohio.
0: Right. So, Judy, how are we doing on time? I don't have my watch or my cell phone up here, so I have no idea what time it is.
1: Take one more question, okay? okay. <laughs> Who wants to get it? Hi, uh, Joy. I follow you on MSNBC and so value the contributions that you've made uh, to this, the voice, your voice, uh, in this political season. And so I just want to thank you. Thank you. Why did you decide to write the book, and what are your key takeaways? What, After having written the book, what was the most profound thing that you learned? Well, I decided to write the book um, because I wanted to kind of, for me, analyze the Obama era and what it means, um, what it means for the country. And, And in order to do that, I felt like I had to walk way backwards and sort of back into the Obama era through the place where I think it started, which was in the civil rights era. I think the civil rights era produced the era we have now. It produced the politics in the country we have now. So I wanted to back into it and, and, write, and write a book that kind of gave at least my first draft of what the Obama era means um, and what it means for whether or not we as a country can do multiracial politics and make it work. Because we're the only truly multiracial democracy. You know, my husband is from England. England could not have a Barack Obama. There's there's, there's nothing in their system that has permitted a non-white Brit being prime minister. It's just, it, we have a unique, um, positive sort of message to give the world in the way we've been able to integrate our minority populations into our politics. And we've also had, I think, a big wake-up call, a big, giant bucket of cold water thrown over this country on the notion that we can be post-racial. And I think my biggest takeaway from writing the book... Um, is that Eric Holder was substantially correct. He was really, he really got a lot of uh, bad reviews for saying we're a nation of cowards in discussing race. Right. But if you read his whole speech, I think he was by and large correct. We are a country that is incredibly multi-ethnic and multi-racial, but which has almost a prohibition on discussing race and ethnicity right, with each exactly. other. Like right. in our own groups... We discuss it openly. Black people discuss race all the time because black people live race every day, everywhere they go. Um, But one of the big consequences of the deracialization of white America, um, the the sort of depopularization of whiteness as an identity. Because remember, this is a country whose identity politics used to include affirmative whiteness. It was born as a country where being free and white and male had a meaning, had a distinct meaning. And that other ethnic groups had to buy into and to graduate into whiteness. Italians weren't treated as white people when they came here. They had to graduate into whiteness. Jewish people weren't treated like white people. There were signs up in Florida that said "No Jews, no N words, no dogs." That, that, that happened that. I in Florida, those in Miami. Right. Um, you know, they had to graduate into whiteness. Uh, Italian, I mean, uh, Irish people. The reason so many cops are Irish. Um, is that initially the idea of policing was to keep the Irish in check because they were seen as an unruly band of almost almost non-humans running around that were so dangerous they needed to be policed by one of their own, right? So you have the the, the notion of whiteness had a meaning. Um, And after the civil rights era, it lost that meaning. And so we're kind of afraid to approach it and to approach the notion that there is a white identity politics that that is out there, that happens. You see it happen. Um, But we won't talk about it. And interracially, we won't talk about race. And I hope that one thing that I can accomplish with this book is to invite people to have an open conversation about race and not to be afraid that that conversation in and of itself will produce racism, because it won't. It'll just produce a better country.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a good Baltimore welcome. I meant what I said in the beginning, Joy, is I think one of us most two political analysts in the country and it's just a joy to have you in Baltimore. Thank you. Thank you so much here.